she's alive. Alive! Hello, and welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. Over the next few months, we'll be tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie or two. Today, we'll be talking about two Hammer horror classics, The Gorgon and The Reptile. In the former, directed by Terence Fisher and starring Hammer stable actors Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, a Gorgon takes a human form and is on a terrorizing spree by turning everybody who comes in her way into a stone figure. And in The Reptile, a somewhat lesser-known Hammer affair from 1966, a Malayan curse turns the daughter of a 19th-century English doctor into a snake woman. Both of these films are very weird, very gothic, very beautifully shot, and somewhat less well-known than other Hammer horror affairs, but by no means less interesting. I'm joined in this episode by writer Kat Ellinger, editor-in-chief of Diabolique magazine and Hammer expert, to discuss both of these films in depth. Kat, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm a big fan of your work. I'm super pumped that we get to talk about these two films oh, together. Oh, thank you. <laughs> put, put on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> Compliments are weird. That's okay. Uh, we can move on. It is a good... You've picked two of the best, though, I think, from this period. Oh, great. I mean, I'm I'm excited because I personally have not watched not nearly all of the Hammer Horror films. And I'm still unsure where whether I actually enjoy them but I loved watching these two for this uh, for this podcast and for this particular project so to kick off can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Hammer Horror in general and with this films in particular yeah well I grew up in so I grew up in like the late 70s early 80s where here in Britain you know, we had no cable TV, like home video was just starting to kick off or or not kick off, but become more accessible. Uh, but mainly a lot of people from that generation, their route into horror films was watching these horror double bills that they'd play on BBC Two. And my mum would let me stay up and watch them because my mum was like a bit of a horror fan. So she'd let me stay up and watch them. And a lot of those films were Hammer or they were classic British horrors. And there wasn't really that much access to anything else. We didn't have like a lot of American films. We didn't have a lot of modern horrors. It was all that or 50s sci-fi. So... I think the first horror film I ever saw was Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And my uncle was babysitting. I've told this story so many times. So. <laughs> um, and we were supposed to be asleep on the sofa. And I was kind of secretly watching it. And I was only about six or seven. And I only caught part of the film. But it was the part when Barbara Shetty, who's in The Gore Girl, actually... Uh, mm-hmm. resurrects into this vampire and is tapping on this window and she's like the minion of Count Dracula and it was so horrifying to me And but I was fascinated I became obsessed with the idea of vampires and the idea that they were going to come in through my windows so I'd stuff it with newspaper like the little vent because I imagined they could turn into mist and sift through years later I saw 
years later i saw that isn't in the film so i got that from um, and i was just obsessed obsessed with christopher lee he was just so terrifying to me so when i was a little bit older maybe eight or nine my mum started saying no it's okay you can watch these because they are quite tame uh, she mm-hmm. she would say oh yeah you can stay up and watch these uh, you know I it was something that was recognizable to me and fascinating and it really just kick-started my lifelong obsession obsession with gothic with gothic horror because even though a lot of people think those or tend to think those films are they're kind of classic and they are kind of tame but they were also very perverse in their own way and so they set me on the mm. path to other things. And a lot of them, especially the especially the Gorgon and the Reptile, and it's the, the thing that I absolutely love about them, is they are like gothic fairy tales. I mean, even Hammer's Dracula can be called like a fairy tale in a way. All of Hammer's films exist on these sound stages, a lot of recycled sets. You've got the same mm-hmm. cast and crew. So it's like this little family unit, but they created this whole world there. So you can immediately tell a Hammer film, even if you have the sound down, by looking at it, by who's in it, by what it looks like. So, uh, but these two in particular, and I can't remember when I first saw them, but they really struck me because they were the first two that I'd seen that were female-centric. And were very mm-hmm. close to the fairy tales that I grew up loving. So they've got like a bit of mythology in them. Not entirely accurate, but <laughs> like Hammer's version of it. Yeah. Um, you've got female monsters. And I know there's that whole argument against the female monstrosity and the hag and all that. But to me, I find a lot of power in those characters. And it was something that Hammer sort of resisted throughout the 60s and then in 1970 they make the vampire lovers which is their adaptation of sheridan the family's carmina and it changes it shifts so the 70s is absolutely dominated by ingrid pitt you know by these very mm-hmm. female fronted and they start to experiment with gender themes in in their jacqueline hyde adaptation and their jack the ripper proto slasher hand to the ripper so they weren't quite there yet in the 60s. So you had this, you had the Gorgon, the Reptile, the Witches, which is a very progressive film as well, which doesn't get enough credit for just how progressive it was. And Yeah, we covered it on the previous season of the of the podcast and it was such an amazing discovery. It's incredible, but it always gets sort of written off as not to go on a weird tangent, but just to keep <laughs> on focus on these female centric things is it gets written off as does the Gorgon and the reptile actually is lesser and sort of because they're slow. A lot of them are slow moving films mm. and then more rom- oh, the witches is more romantic, but the reptile and the, and the Gorgon are quite romantic so they get written off by the the mm-hmm. cult of Hammer fans in general as sort of lesser. But the witches in particular, you've got a female magus in that, which doesn't happen in any other film. It's like the female magus, the Crowley character, is a woman. And the only yeah. man in it is this guy who dresses up as a vicar who isn't. He's like, <laughs> he's like basically cuckolded by his sister or whoever she is. 
Night of the Demon, <laughs> Rosemary's Baby, that sort of Crowley-esque, charismatic Magus figure who's learned, who spent years acquiring all this occult knowledge. You never see women in that role, but the witches has that. And then it, I just, my heart just sinks when I see people, oh, it's a bit boring or it's a bit, it's a lesser Hammer film. And I just think, for Christ's sake, no. And it's got jo- Joan Fontaine in it for crying out loud. You know, Hollywood A this stuff. Mm, and it, it's yeah. just like, oh, but yeah. And it's the same with the Gorgon, same with the reptile. The Gorgon is possibly you know their first real sort of experimenting with a female monster so let's start and dig in with with the gorgon it was here under a full moon in the little village of van dorf that an ancient legend suddenly terrifyingly came to life doctor you'll perform an autopsy on a body that's turned to stone said that when mortals looked upon her face, they were turned to stone. Leave Vandorf before it's too late. What is it you're afraid of? I'm afraid for you. Or of what I may discover, if I remain. So it is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Hammer's first female monster-centric film. Where does it sit within their history when this film is made? So... They really started their gothic like Hammer around for a long time before they started making horror. And they mainly did sort of quota quickies. You know, right on up from the 30s, very low budget. A lot of films that emulated American films that were a lot cheaper versions. They did a few noirs, crime films. And by the mid-50s, they started to experiment with science fiction so we have the first Quatermass films and X the Unknown and in 1957 they then make The Curse of Frankenstein which was their take on Frankenstein which was just very modern you have Frankenstein has become the monster rather than the creature he's as Dave Peary said in his amazing study in the 70s a heritage of horror because Peary was like the first one to start making these connections to literature that he was like mm-hmm. a dandy, he was a libertine. And so it was a very modern, contemporary updating, and it made Hammer a lot of money. And then they did Dracula, or Horror of Dracula, as it was called in America. They did The Mummy. And around this time, they made, they made a deal with Columbia. Because one thing Hammer could never do was... They never had the money to purely produce and distribute their own films. So they were largely reliant on American money, and Columbia was one mm-hmm. of their big first contracts in that horror thing. And so it was within the Columbia contract that they made the Gorgon in the space of about six or seven years. So they'd gone through they'd gone through the sort of main Gothic staples, the Dracula, the Mummy, mm-hmm. the the Frankenstein, a couple of sequels for Frankenstein. 
And then they started to mix things up a bit. So they did Fanatic as well, which was also, I think, 1964, which isn't a gothic horror film, but it does have Talita Bankhead as this is a bit of a hagsploitation film. So it's a bit of a riff on that whatever happened to Baby Jane movement. And so she was like a female monster in a way, but a very human one. And then they Mm. make the Gorgon, which is their take, a very strange script, actually, which because it mixes in aspects of mythology, but it keeps it very firmly in Hammer's gothic product. And, of course, it's directed by Terence Fisher. And Fisher was the guy who gave Hammer that very iconic look. He was the man responsible for Dracula and the Curse of Mm -hmm. Frankenstein. He'd come from a background, a long background in British film in things like Gainsborough, dramas and romances. And when he gets to Gothic, he makes that very romantic as well. And I think the Gorgon is him at his most romantic because it's such a tragic film. And you don't hear much about Terence Fisher, the romanticist, but he totally was. He was totally loved fantasy and fairy tales and romance and i think with the gorgon that's where he really gets to show that and so it's less of a when you compare it to those earlier films the curse of frankenstein and dracula especially they were scandalous when they were first Mm. released they were terrifying they were gruesome curse of frankenstein was britain's first horror in color and you know, the press were just like, oh, my God, this is so grotesque. Somebody compared Christopher Lee to looking like a road accident victim. It was just, like, really shocking. And the Gorgon doesn't really rely on that. It doesn't rely on the gore or the monsters or anything. It's very much a mood piece. So it stands out in that early period, say, to the mid-60s, 57 to the mid-60s, which is, like, their classic period. It it stands out as being very different in tone and mood, even though you can see it's clearly part of this world that they've created. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that gets it ranked down. And it has mm. had more appreciation in recent years because it was restored to Blu-ray and a lot of people could see how beautiful it looked because it is a beautiful film. It is stunning. And I find it really interesting that you call it romantic because it is. I think part of when I was watching it, and I I admit I've watched it for the first time just a few days ago, it struck me as a sort of doomed romance horror as opposed to a, a monster movie or definitely not kind of the the grotesque sexiness that I associated with, you know, especially the vampire films that that Hammer has produced in the past, which is the majority of the ones that I've that I've seen so far. And I wanted to pick you up kind of on how do you think it works with the Gorgon as a monster? Because so much of the film is about the threat of her before they know who she is. She's killing people throughout the whole film before we we get to see her in the final confrontation. But it's it almost we don't we are afraid of the idea of her before even knowing what she is or how she kills and it kind of goes from a doomed gothic romance film to his potential kind of procedural serial killer movie to a full-blown mythological monster movie it's interesting how they use that they were very compromised on budget and one of the things that gets it marked down in points is the fact that the monster doesn't look very good 
so by the time that you see it it's just like oh you know it doesn't look very good and that seems to be the takeaway for the lot of the monster kid fans is oh well the monster's not very good in it but for me the fact that it uses this monster because they did this with dracula you don't see dracula as much as you think you do but he is so terrifying that he fills every frame in 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 the dracula film so you can just sense him everywhere so it's an approach that fisher had already used but he slows it down even more for the gorgon instead focuses on these aspects of romance this idea of falling in love with somebody who then turns out to be a monster and the ending in that regard is one of the most tragic because you often get in the hammer gothics it's very black and white it's like good versus evil or that's how it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be although if you were like me you grew up wanting to be teen dracula and i think i'm not the only one because he was a lot cooler but it's like you get this catharsis at the end that good has has triumphed and you know it's very corny in that respect and the Gorgon doesn't do that. It just leaves you with this overwhelming feeling of like, oh, that's just so sad. <laughs> and, and and it's so yeah. different in that way. I mean, you mentioned before the fact that they sort of take some bits of Greek mythology and they sort of twist it around and then update it. And there's an element kind of of a curse and the fact that the Gorgon takes over the body of another woman uh, every full moon. So you know, what do you make of the way that they uh, use bits and elements of Greek mythology and update it to give it this, um, to make human women into the vessels of the monster? Well, this part really fascinates me because in a way they kind of make it or they kind of fit it into the lycanthropy myth of having the full moon. Now, Megara was actually a fury. She wasn't a Gorgon. Um, mm-hmm. So they've just slotted that in. But then they've put in this strange, almost werewolf-like, you know, the idea that someone can shapeshift against their will on the full moon. It feels to me distinctly werewolf. And if you look mm-hmm. at, like, the werewolf in cinema, apart from some very early examples... It's it like werewolves seem exclusive to to like male. Yeah. This male thing, this male aggression, and the the women they tend to be more like shapeshifters, like butterflies or snakes or whatever. So they've they've used that angle, and I'm I'm sad that they didn't really experiment more with this idea because I love a good shapeshift. And, mm-hmm. you know, with this one, you get something different. You get, well, me and Sam Deegan did the commentary. So we had like an hour and a half to like explore all the themes. We kind of compared it to the Italian peplum, mythological peplum films, which were being made around the same time, which some mm-hmm. of them, a lot of them were just sword and sandal hero epics. But some of them, especially ones made by people like Mario Bava brought in mythology with these horror aspects and made them more into gothic films and Mm -hmm. this comes the closest to that so it's not necessarily true to mythology and with some of the Italian ones you get like 
you get necromancers and flying zombies and all sorts of stuff that they try and mix in with like greek mythology and you know it's it's the closest to that and i would have really loved to have seen them like experiment with more of that but because they were always reliant on this american money with whoever they were working with there was always that pressure that they were expected to well can you make another dracula sequel and can you make another franken which were their two biggest sort of most successful lines can you make something that's more commercial so and they were also tied by the bbfc as well and they faced a lot of censorship so they could never go too far but when you see them experimenting it's really exciting i think because people do like you just said you people get this idea of what hammer is and i think a lot of that is the reflection of a lot of the fandom that surrounds Mm. it that it is hammer glamour which is the big tagline it's about women in corsets and it's all once you actually really get into these films they're Mm. very perverse and they're not as you know male centric as a lot of them appear but it's like you know i guess it's the brand it's what people see of that brand and they think yeah they're just these kind of blokey sexy vampire films you know but yeah like even dracula was of course an absolute hormonal explosion for women of a certain age because christopher lee was just like (laughs) such a sexual predator and you know that gets forgotten these days people just think it's all about the kind of glamour aspect but no, they they were for men and women, and there are things, and there's a lot of hammer glamour men in these films as well, which sadly never gets picked up on. A lot of dishy men along the years. <laughs> I mean, Christopher Lee being the top one of those, but I think women of any age, or you know, anyone who fancies men of any age, watches Christopher Lee's Dracula. Yeah, that's that that is. A hormonal explosion across the generations <laughs> it's great but there is something i found kind of interesting and i don't know in myself if i find this sort of moralistic or almost a little bit conservative but in the gorgon it seems that men who are looking at women uh, literally at the gorgon but also anyone else who is in a romantic entanglement or feels desire or um, falls in love with a woman or is looking at women sexually is punished by the Gorgon. So I was wondering if this is, um, if you think this is a theme in the film that she's sort of a, a punisher of the male or the, lasci- or the lascivious gaze. And because this is this sort of a throwback as well to her actual status in mythology, which, you know, you mentioned she's a fury and she was the fury that was the punisher of, um, of infidelity and oath breakers. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, I've never thought about that. It's a really interesting question because you did find like a, to, to point to Barbara Shelley mm. as a perfect example. And she was like perhaps their first, you know, years before Ingrid Pitt, you know, the closest that came to, like, the iconic monstrous status. In Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which she did two years after the Gorgon, there's a very similar thing in that, in that she she's turned, but then she's punished because she Mm -hmm. goes from this very buttoned-up Victorian woman, very, you know, connected to the church and, Mm -hmm. you know, very moralistic, to this 
it's like this lascivious, horny, like she just totally changes as a vampire, very, very sort of horny and sexy. And she's punished by being, and I know this is kind of a spoiler, but you can't really spoil a Hammer film. Um, <laughs> it's being um, pinned down by priests and and staked to death with this very phallic-looking stake. Mm. And it's like the punishment. And Hammer did have this very strange relationship with sex. I think a lot of that had to do with the censorship, though. They had mm. to... I guess they had to sort of justify it being there. They wanted to put in the sex, they wanted to put in the gore, but they had their hands tied, or one hand tied behind their back all the time because they were consistently having to justify their choices. The scripts would go to John Trevelyan at the BBFC and he'd be like, cut this, don't like this, don't like that. When you see the things that were cut from their scripts, it's just heartbreaking. Mm because um but it's interesting you bring that up because it does it is a line that is in a lot of hammer films that people are people talk about the slasher and people being punished for having sex but it is something that appears in a lot of hammer films that sex is definitely linked to death and desire or or sex usually leads to death in some way and and dracula's whole thing is seduction yeah. You know, so if you allow yourself to be seduced by him, then you're doomed. And then they usually have the heroes and the heroines who are no offence to the actors because some of them are lovely, but they're always boring and really sort of stifled. And they're the ones that are like the heroes because they're untainted. They're like mm. very innocent. And so anyone who gets a bit sexy is like <laughs> kind of... So it was, um, I just think their way of getting it around the censors, a bit like the Hays Code, they can say, well, you know, we do have all this sex in here, not that the Gorgon has a lot, but, <laughs> it, it, you know, we've punished the people, so it's all cool. And that was all, like, cool in, in that era. <laughs> so. Yeah. And um, then what do you think of the Gorgon herself as a monster? I mean, I find it interesting to see that she also appears really even though she's killing people throughout the film she only we only really see her for the last like couple minutes of the film and everything else is a big build-up what do you think about her as a as a screen monster in general i think it's interesting that they and very conventional that they kind of had to fall back on you know, relating it to the hag so they have a much older actress playing the gorgon who you just mm -hmm see for a few minutes prudence hyman yes and and it, i think it would have been more interesting to have her as carla but with the snakes have her as mm. beautiful but but they don't they have her in this very stereotypical way but that actual scene beyond the effects which yeah the, the effects aren't very good but beyond that you know the idea of the reflections and you've got this amazing sort of abandoned church or whatever it is and the mist and the idea that somebody might accidentally see her and you know there's the the big mirror there where you might actually like that scene is actually really effective and i think people just see tend to see oh well the monster wasn't very good whereas mm. the actual tension in that scene is wonderful let's move on now to the second film we're going to discuss the reptile from 1966 in this remote little country village the mortal remains of a man are laid to rest who is it this time, Peter? It's Mr. Spaulding. He phoned him this morning. 
Just like the others. Just like the others, he died in the night. Get away! Suddenly, violently, horribly. This is an evil place. Corrupt and evil. Evil, as venomous as a snake. Turns the quiet of this village into a writhing hell on earth. Where every man fears for his safety and his sanity. Where everyone is suspect. Do you mean they died by some sort of magic? Some witchcraft? For the first time in my life, I'm frightened. Everyone is frightened. I obviously picked this these two films because they're the ones with female monsters. But this one is a really weird and somewhat problematic film for me. So what's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite problematic. Let's <laughs> love mince words. Um, but this one was particularly gory, I found, even by today's standards. Um, so what do you make of this one, of the, hor- of the horrific elements of the reptile? I think, because obviously it doesn't have as much of the, as the romance as uh, the Gorgon. So it, it doesn't have that. Like you said, it's, it's weird. Like this idea of uh, whatever it is, Hindu snake cult, or like it's got some weird colonial themes in there. Everyone seems to have been to India, but but it's very British in that way. It's all kind of like I was out in Africa, Johnny. You know, it's it comes from that that place, and so it's got those. But the actual, I think the actual design of like the reptile or the or the, it should be called like the snake woman would have been a better title. <laughs> is much more effective than the Gorgon. And it's obviously much more centered on the idea that this this monster, like you see this monster, it's scary. You know, it's not Terence Fisher, it's John Gilling who, and John Gilling actually scripted the Gorgon, but he was also a director. And he made some very strange films. Like he made Plague of the Zombies, which is one of my favorite Hammer films. And it's it's like this sneering like diatribe a class war manifesto almost <laughs> it's like and you on the same set filmed on the same set as a reptile as well so it, i found this really interesting because it made well first of all it made the small quaint english village extremely fucking terrifying yes <laughs> but also it just made these kind of especially the the character of Dr. Franklin and kind of these uppity, uptight British men, these protagonists that possibly erroneously, but I identify quite a lot with kind of the, the hammer men as really terrifying. But I think this film kind of makes them villainous without making them supernatural. They really do, or Gillian does really make a lot of like the mystery of the reptile. And I mm. think Noel Willman, who who plays the Doctor, I love him. He's in The Kiss of the Vampire as this very camp. It was one of their supposed Dracula sequels that Christopher Lee wouldn't be in, so they made it into something else. And he runs this vampire cult. And he's just, just this very weird camp vampire. And he's one of my favourites in that whole line. So to see him in this sort of... It might be like a cultural thing, but this is like a very old type of Britain. This is like, Mm. you know, the aristocracy and these posh people and they're all... 
you know, come out of the colonies and they're all not very nice and not very polite and egotistical. So I really like that aspect of it. It, it kind of puts it in a certain time frame, though, that I can imagine is quite yeah. jarring <laughs> to non-British people. But I think Noel Willman is just, and he hams it the fuck up the entire time. Like his irritability is ridiculous. And it's like, how villainous can I make myself? Like, I'm just going to shout louder and I'm just going to shove these people. Like, he's just doing it up to like 11 the whole time. And you just think, calm down, mate. Um, But the other thing I love about it is Michael Ripper, who's like in so many... Uh, he's yes. just in so many of the Hammer films usually it's like a landlord or some smaller characters just got this huge role in this as a hero and it's like fuck yeah Michael Ripper <laughs> he's like the nicest guy in it so Ray Barrett who plays Harry Spaulding he's like you know he's not very heroic either because he keeps pissing off and leaving his wife alone <laughs> all the time goes to the pub to have a chat with Michael Ripper, like people are being killed, and he's had all these warnings, like you know you shouldn't be here, and you know move away, and he goes to the bloody pub uh, for a pint with Michael Ripper and leaves his poor wife, who's played by Jennifer Daniel, and she's always left mm-hmm. on her own, like it. <laughs> so women aren't very well treated in the film. I mean, bless her, she's she's been disappointed since they first set foot in the cottage in this film like her face when she comes in and she's like oh okay so i'm gonna have to clean up now i know it's just the women in this are just really they get a bad deal of it and then you've got jacqueline pierce who's wonderful as anna i wanted to ask you about anna who is the you know i mean this is all spoilerific so she is the reptile woman what do you make of her and jacqueline pierce i think if it wasn't for pierce i think she just makes the film because her portrayal of anna is just very tragic she you know you really feel for the character because she wow she lives with his father he sort of loves her and hates her and then you've got the weird Mm. snake man the fact that he like controls her and you know i think the inclusion of jacqueline pierce in that just kind of elevates it a little bit because you really just get this sense that she is just a total victim although that's something they quite often like to do hammer Hmm. until ingrid pitt really they had this very traditional and it's something that comes up in universal as well so if a man was uh turned into a monster in some way say like made mm-hmm. into a vampire or some other uh, the only one who goes against this really is larry tolbert in the wolfman films i'd say they're more like the vampires the sexier mm-hmm. monsters they could be <laughs> powerful and seductive and and turning monstrous being turned into a vampire would be a source of power Whereas with women, it always has to be explained as some sort of curse and they're humanized and they're very frail and they're tortured people. And this is something you see like across the board in classic horror is it's almost they couldn't accept a female monster unless, you know, it was explained as a curse or this terrible thing. And it really only changes. And even Ingrid Pitt's Carmina had some of this in it in that she's a tortured soul, but then that comes mm. from the book. But it's only when Ingrid Pitt does things like Countess Dracula, which is the Bathory story, that it starts to change. And then you mm. saw it more in European horror, things like Daughters of Darkness, 
We've got mm-hmm. Dauphine Sarig as this like libertine, completely mm-hmm. unapologetic, loves killing people, loves seducing people, loves killing people. In British or classic American classic horror, they 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 just didn't seem to be able to stomach the idea that a woman could be a monster and and love it and become powerful. Like they they'd have to turn it into some sort of tragedy. They do that in the Gorgon as well. Mm. It's this awful thing, this poor woman. And you don't really get to see women just going around killing people and having fun, (laughs) which is like, I think is one of the most transgressive and powerful things a horror film can do, is not excuse a woman from being violent. Why not let her be the powerful, seductive one? You know, why does she have to be this quivering wreck who's like, you know... Now, if I had snake powers, I would just take out everyone I had ever annoyed me. I would, you know, <laughs> <laughs> revel in that shit. <laughs> totally. I mean, there's there's a couple of avenues here that I want to take, but one of the one of them is the fact that one of the things that I actually found refreshing of that particular trope of of female monsters having to sort of be being excused from being a monster because they were cursed or created as such is the fact that a lot of the female monsters that I'm looking at are always still quite hot. They're always made up in a way that the actress's beauty can still go through. So they're always meant to design to be sort of desirable, even when they're monstrous. And one of the things that I loved about the reptile is that she is really fucking gross from the moment we see her. The makeup is incredible. Like some of their best. astonishing. From that era. And the fangs, because she's kind of like a vampire as well, in a way, because she bites people but the fangs are just incredible and she just looks hideous and the makeup is just like amazing i think it just really makes it absolutely so i found i found kind of that really refreshing even now that you know jacqueline pierce is kind of very beautiful kind of english rose type uh beauty but when we see her as the reptile, I was like, holy shit, this this should be way more famous because she is allowed to be truly terrifying, even though, you know, she does need to die at the end as well, which was a shame. Yeah, I mean, they did usually, like, across the board, take that more conventional route. Like I said, with the Gorgon, they have to mm-hmm. replace, they have to replace Barbara Shelley with Prudence Hyman. They can't mm-hmm. have Barbara Shelley... So they tried it there and they and they tried it with this. But then when they get to their vampire films, it's much more about seduction. So they have very, very beautiful vampires. They have Ingrid Pitt. They have Yuti Stensgaard. They have the Collison twins in Twins of Evil who were like Playboy girls. Mm-hmm. And they go very much into that more. And I love those films, but they do go very much more into that more conventional, you know, monsters are sexy. Whereas just in these two films, they they really go into the grotesque with the reptile much more on the grotesque. And I just think that's fabulous to see because it is like really when you see Jacqueline Pierce, you don't expect her to then come out looking like that with that weird snake head with the poppy eyes. (laughs) Um, And it does remind me a little bit of then what Ken Russell did years later with the Lair of the White Worm. But that, again, was a snake creature that was rather glamorous. So this is like the, the gross version of that. But it's it's remarkable. And again, though, it just doesn't seem to get that traction as like the greats. 
I think because it is a very sort of female there's there's a lot of emphasis on the women with the men sort of running around shouting at each other what do you think it is about kind of the snake element that seems to be associated with um with female horror monsters so much I don't know. I think it must be that Adam and Eve thing, you know, that we, oh. we've always been seen as in in cahoots with the fucking serpent, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I think that's what it comes down to. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's a you know, fucking board we... man. <laughs> the cross we have to bear is you know i just think i don't know whether that was conscious or whether it's a conscious thing but we are seeing this you know but you took the fucking apple we get to to be snakes on screen for the rest of of the rest of cinema history because it's like why didn't dr franklin get made into a snake you know it's (laughs) he was the one nosing around in the snake cult you know, it's yeah. like surely would have been more useful to them. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. And um, the other thing that I wanted to pick up on is kind of what do you make of the tension between Dr. Franklin and, and the Malay, who is his, you know, a member of the snake cult and his servant? And I mean, to be honest, like not the greatest you know, example of racial politics. No. <laughs> but then this was Hammer and this was yeah. I mean and I'm not just saying Hammer were were necessarily like that, but you know, a lot of British film and T V from the sixties and seventies was was not sensitive to racial politics, put it that way. Which is strange because in other areas in drama, you know, talking about mixed race relationships and things like that we were we were often very progressive in talking about things like that but then we also had this i guess this this just this connection to this weird colonial past that we had to keep airing out <laughs> um yeah cuz like things like the devil rides out there's a, a person of color in that who's like the weird genie in the lamp thing it's just all very like oh god <laughs> yeah I'm I'm really sad they don't make more of the the whole snake cult character and and, and mm. give him more of a character because he's basically just he just appears at the back of the room and and does this weird look and you don't really get to know more about him and I want to know about the snake cult I want to know about his like magic tricks and all that and they don't bother explaining that they just sort of wrap it into the oh well he's a bit brown so we'll just accept you know it's that sort of thing yeah they kind of sweep him under the generic rug of foreign villain and clearly he must be magic yeah, yeah. and it's a shame because yeah they like the whole snake cult angle and that is fascinating but it just gets mentioned as an afterthought in that whole section where you know they're about to die and so you get there this is what happened very quickly and it's like you know but they could have made so much more of that i think so much more of that i i think you know the whole mythology thing and the occult angle you know it could have been could have been so much more and it just seemed like a bit of a waste to just 
slot that in right at the end because it's like you know i want <laughs> details <laughs> yeah i wanted the reptile woman to run away and have her own sequel where she's the actual protagonist yes <laughs> now that would have been good or running her own snake cult would have been amazing she could have got yes yeah be a goddess <laughs> be worshipped in another English village and um, just to, to kind of start wrap, wrapping things up a little bit why do you think this particular female monster is not maybe as iconic as as others because she is sort of original if I'm not mistaken right she's not based on a on a myth she's not based on another story as far as I know no and I, I, I am no expert on Malayan snake cults so so <laughs> they exist <laughs> Uh, but yeah it's like in that whole kind of classic period of hammer this is one of the most experimental interesting films as was the witches as well it's often the ones with the women in that i find more interesting whereas the ones they made with the the men in apart from curse of the werewolf which is which is just amazing did quite often tend to follow that same conventional route of the Frankensteins, of the Draculas. And there's nothing wrong with those films. They're all really interesting and they're all thematic. They've all got their very own personalities. But it just runs along the same track. So when you get something like The Reptile, it's just like, oh, wow, this is incredible. You've got this whole occult mythology that you could have built up and you could have made a sequel and you could have done much more with this. I think around this time, though, if this had been made a bit later on, I think they would have made much more of it. I think around this time, British horror tended to be very reluctant to deal in occult themes. I think mainly because of censorship and especially if it was anything to do with the church. So, you know, after 1968, when you had Rosemary's Baby, all that changed and you saw, mm. you know, a lot more experimentation happen with the studio even. You get to the satanic rites mm. of Dracula and you've got Dracula as this, you know, uh, business, ugly arc, sort of controlling minions from a tower and just all this vampire circus which is an incredible film so much experimentation but at this period they just really were were kind of stuck with what they could do and like i said also it had to be something i mean how do you sell something that doesn't have an existing market people you know hammer were purely a business unit a cottage mm. industry they were in it to make money not necessarily art to make very lowbrow horror films for a particular market and so you know i guess all the other artistic flourishes were just tempered down if something didn't fit a particular box i mean we still get that today people are just like you know what is it like <laughs> you know what can I sell this as? What can I market this as? And we often see films yeah. mismarketed, you know, because they're compared to something that they're not. So it's a, it's a shame, yeah. really, that, you know, they didn't get a chance to run with more of this stuff. But then it leaves us with the fact that these two films are kind of special because they stick out mm -hmm. in that era. But, yeah, I would have loved to have seen that, that reptile sequel with, you know... Jacqueline Pierce is the Cobra Woman God and 
you know, <laughs> free from that horrible dad. Well, anyone who's listening, write it. That's the follow-up yeah. we need. <laughs> to wrap up our conversation, would you recommend c- contemporary horror fans seek these films out? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it would have been such a weird flex if he just went, Yeah, no. no. <laughs> no, I want to keep them all to myself, actually. I don't want to share them. <laughs> Kat, thank you so much for no, thank you all your time and and for your amazing insight. Can you tell us where we can find more of your work online? Mainly at diaboliquemagazine.com is my main horn, although I've uh, been very busy doing a lot of audio commentaries and shit at the moment. So, um, so I've just published a book on talking of daughters of darkness and vampires. I just published a book on the Devil's Advocates series which is like an existing series of monographs that covers various horror films. 1971 erotic Euro cult vampire film. I wrote a whole book on that. I interviewed the director, Harry Kummel, and the star, Danya Wime. And that has just been published now. So you can get that from Liverpool University Press or Amazon. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kat. No, thank you. And that's it for another episode of the Final Girls podcast. Please do rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalghost.uk. You can follow Kat on Twitter at Kat underscore Diaboli, and I tweet a lot of cat pictures on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening, and next week we're going to be chatting about one of my favorite horror films of all time, Harry. <laughs>